0: Welcome to the podcast of Inspiring Women in Hospitality. I'm Noreen Ahmed, your host. Each episode, I invite a woman from the hospitality industry to share her story with us, why she got into hospitality, her journey so far, her learnings, and who inspires her. On this episode, we hear from Leah and Lauren, recorded in May 2023. These two sisters are building high-end hostels in the U.S., And before having their two properties in the U.S., they opened their first hostel in Barcelona. All right, we're now recording. Hello everyone, Noreen here. Today I have a special episode. I have two sisters joining me today for this episode, Lee and Lauren. So it's going to be slightly different, um, but we get to hear from some two incredible women. Thank you, Nina, in advance for making this introduction. Uh, So let's start with introductions. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, Lee, I'll go to you first.
1: So, I hope I don't jump too much on Lauren's toes here. Lauren and I are sisters, so a lot of a lot of our story is the same. Um, Lauren and I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and went to university. I studied finance. She studied foreign service. We worked in finance for a few years. She and I are just a year apart. So I worked at Goldman Sachs for three years. Lauren was at HSBC for two, and I think quickly on, I can't speak for Lauren, but really quickly I realized finance is not my passion. And she and I had both studied abroad and stayed in hostels in Europe and thought the whole time, like, this doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be shabby. It doesn't have to be disorganized. It doesn't have to be a little bit scary. And so just thought we could do it better. So after our very brief careers in finance, I called Lauren up and like, let's try this out. And she was game so she and I moved to Barcelona Spain where we opened two small hostels there we then moved back to New York City where we op- we converted a 15,000 square foot warehouse in LIC Queens called The Local and then most recently we did ground up construction a total development project to open up Lolo Pass Um so our our concept is just higher end hostels. So it's more and more a product that's interesting to North American tourists. So it's turning more hotel slash hostel, but that's what we're doing. Lauren, do you wanna talk more about business school or a little bit more about our properties?
2: Sure, so Lee currently lives in New York City. I live in Portland. Um, I'm a mom to a four-year-old. And uh, a lot of my day-to-day is spent um, on the operations here in Portland. Um, it's a pretty big property. The one here, it's 87 rooms with a big S and B component. So I take personal interest in that. I think it's really fun. We have a coffee shop and a restaurant. Um, I study wine. Um, I have a diploma in wine, so I have take special interest in in our wine list. Um, yeah. So what else is there to say, Lee?
1: We did go to business school. Each of us did pursue an MBA in this period while we were in Barcelona, right before coming to New York. I studied at INSEAD in France and the Singapore campuses and Lauren did her MBA at Wharton.
0: All right, thank you so much for that introduction. So Lauren, when Lee came to you and said, let's do this, let's quit our jobs in finance and uh, start our own business. um, Why did you say yes?
2: Well, Lee said she found out pretty early on that she, that finance wasn't a career for her I was told by someone in training I don't think this is the job for you you seem way more interested in people and so it, for me my job at HSBC was great it was a great learning experience great opportunity to travel but it I knew it wasn't something I was going to do for the long run so I don't know I was living in Milan Italy so it was pretty easy to just move to Barcelona I um one our, the office I was, there, I was working in was auctioning off their sedan, their Saab company car. And so I won it for 3,001 euros, price is right style. Um, so we and I could road trip to Barcelona. And I think at, just at that point we were really young and didn't have ties of you know, partners or kids or other responsibilities. So it was very, quote unquote, easy to do at that time. Um, looking back, it was easy. At the time, it seemed like a huge, huge thing. But, you know, at that, at that time, um, in hindsight, it it was, it was nice to do at that time, because it was easy. I think we take that for granted that
1: that was a point in our careers that was relatively risk free. It didn't feel like it because it felt like we were very much jumping off of the, the straight and narrow path, you know, getting out of the rat race. That seemed like a huge risk. But actually, that was the most risk-free point in our career, I think that we could have mm-hmm. taken that leap.
0: Yeah,
2: I had and Barcelona also... was a fairly inex- Oops, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say Barcelona was a pretty inexpensive place to live, so we kind of figured in our heads like we have a little savings from these jobs. Let's we'll spend a year. We did some babysitting while we were there, things to make a little extra money. Um, so it was it was something that it was risky, but we we knew we could we could do it for about a year, and if we didn't get anything done, we we could probably return home and go back to the grind if we needed to.
0: Yeah, the the comment I was going to make about is the risk free, you know, when you started out earlier um, on it, I had someone on on the show as well on the podcast. I mean, she started her own business really early on in her career and she said exactly the same thing, you know, the risk was almost a little bit less cuz you don't have those same kind of adult responsibilities as perhaps, you know, slightly later mm-hmm. on in your life. And I think you're we're also a little bit more I don't know carefree for lack yeah, of a better word I think we also didn't Naive.
1: have so much we didn't have so much to lose yet and yeah. I was aware of that at the time yeah. that like if we continued our careers at Goldman Sachs and HSBC you'd get to a point where you're making so much money it's hard to walk away from that if we weren't there yet so
0: it was an yeah, opportunity time. cost
2: at that time wasn't yeah wasn't that well. high yeah.
0: mm-hmm. So, Lee, why did you choose, you know, coming into hospitality, you know, opening up a hostel, like, you know, it, it. what was the connection between finance and and this? I mean, Lauren, you said you're a people person, so people make sense, you know, to come into there hospitality. There was none, I would say.
1: I studied business as an undergraduate at Wharton. So I've always, Lauren and I grew up in a household where our parents speak in business terms. We didn't even realize it and, until we went to business school. But we just think like that. We're always thinking about business and how things operate. Um, And it really was studying abroad in Spain and taking a road trip with my best friend through the south of Spain. And every, it was the most fun trip ever, but every night it was so difficult to find a good solid place to stay that it was just really frustrating. To be fair, this was eons ago. This was before Web 2.0. We weren't making web bookings. We couldn't see reviews online. We were just equipped with a map and a guidebook. Um, And it got me thinking the fact that it doesn't need to be like that the nature of backpacking as you go city to city to city, why is there not a chain of hostels? At this point, budget brands were all over the United States. There was a ton of smaller motel brands, budget brands, and it just kind of baffled me that that didn't really exist in Europe and specifically targeted towards backpackers. So I just kind of it on that. It was, I went back to school my senior year, wrote a business plan for a chain of hostels in an entrepreneurial management class with some friends. And then just couldn't get it out of my head. So it was something Lauren studied abroad subsequently. She and I did some traveling together. It was just something we were always kicking around. Mm. And really that, that idea of we can do it better and it <laughs> should be done better.
0: Yes. I actually had someone I've also interviewed on the podcast who opened a hostel in Thailand for the same reasons, right? She went traveling. She loved it. She loved the, the backpacker hostel life so much. She had a really great experience. And I think she was traveling around South America, but she, the same thing, especially from a female perspective, you know, going somewhere where you feel safe and comfortable and yeah. having somewhere nice mm-hmm. to go to. She's like, I can do this better. So she mm-hmm. went back home to Thailand and then opened up her own thing as well. Also very young and early on in her career. Yeah. So, again, I think there's a theme here about if you're going to do something, do it early on. hmm.
2: I think also, too, Lee and I had the good fortune of being able to travel as kids a lot. Um, we did a program when we were 10 where we did an exchange with where you'd go live with a French family for three weeks, and then the French student came and lived with us for three weeks. And that was so eye opening. I remember just kind of looking back on it, thinking about if everyone had the opportunity to do something like this, how it could change the world. And that, not that what we do is like, you know, solving all the world's problems, but I think that travel opens people's perspectives makes them understand other cultures other people and just kind of broadens people in a way that that not much else can and so for me i think that's why i love what we do and why i really wanted to get into this was i know that the impact travel had on us as kids and kind of how it shaped our worldview and i think it would be wonderful to open that to everyone and hostels is a way to do that because it's less expensive. It affords people the opportunity to be able to travel to so many places. And I love being part of
0: that. Yeah, I completely agree with that, with the travel aspect. And that's a theme that comes consistently, you know, with anyone who comes into this industry is that it's either there's a desire to travel or travel, opened them up in such a way that they're like, okay, this is the industry that I need to be in. And for me, that was, you know, very much part of my upbringing by the time I was 10 I had lived in you know four different countries so you know from a very young age I was kind of like conditioned (laughs) to be open-minded and be flexible adaptable and you know just the desire to continue to want to learn more and travel and actually just before we started this you know I'm kind of on this trip of going to all these different places and I haven't really found my place but actually Lee you pointed out a good point that I could probably just go and be anywhere which which is a
1: lovely thing to recognize about yourself and a wonderful place to be in the world, I think.
0: Yeah, so I'm very, very fortunate. But it might be
2: Barcelona. It
0: could be Barcelona. (laughs) I think my brother (laughs) secretly hopes that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, you know, you you guys moved to Barcelona. You said to give yourself a year. I mean, you could have easily just said, okay, I'm gonna go work in a hostel. Why did you decide to open and run your own instead of just working somewhere?
1: I mean, it sounds nuts, right? And looking back, we probably should have gotten a job. But I think coming from Wall Street, I think there was one part like, am I really going to go work in a hostel? All, I think we were worried about the legality of it, right? Of like, we're, we didn't have papers to work in Spain. So I think that probably held us back. Um, but we did go to Spain with an open mind. We didn't really know what we were going to find. Our business plan was worth really the paper it was written on. And... I remember saying we have a multi-pronged approach. We we weren't sure if we wanted to buy a hostel, if we wanted to um, build our own, we had a couple other options. So we did go into it trying to figure out the best path forward. And I think really quickly realized we just had to start our own from scratch. It was probably the least capital intensive, oddly, of all of our options. Um, Yeah, but I I don't know, working in it wasn't enough. It was, we needed to, We just needed to dive all in. I think if we went there and like, oh, let's work in a hostel, I think we oddly would have gotten trapped in just kind of like a complacent lifestyle of enjoying the Barcelona life without moving forward. So I think just having that all or nothing mindset kept us going.
0: Okay. And where did you get the funding from?
1: We had our own savings and then a little infusion from family. Mm. And we had a line of credit from a Spanish bank. That was this hysterical EU program at the time where basically they were writing checks to people with all we had translated was the executive summary of our business plan. We did not have a work permit at the time because we were trying to get a self-employment work visa. So it was kind of like a chicken and egg situation and they were just writing checks, right and left. It was crazy. So that was really helpful and lucky. I don't think that kind of thing exists anymore. So we just happened. It was pre-financial crisis. It was a good time to be taking risks in Europe.
0: That thing no longer exists. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise, surprise. surprise. Right time, right place or right timing, so to speak. Okay. And then um, how long did you guys stay? And then when did you go back um, to the U.S. and why? So
2: we stayed there. um, We moved there in 2006, and we opened our first property called Somnio in 2008. Um, we, I think we secured the lease about nine months into living there a year. Yeah. Um, did a construction job where we renovated the floor of a building to open it, um, and then ran that for a bit, and then I think we both decided business school was the next step. Um, Lee had studied finance as an undergrad. I hadn't, so I really had I was trying to put P&L statements together just from Googling what they were. I mean, I really had zero zero financial um, education. So I, I knew that if we wanted to keep doing this, it would be imperative to, to study business. So um, I left first in 2010 to go spend two years at Wharton, coming back in the summer and on vacations. Um, while I was there, Lee opened Duo, our second hostel there. Um, and then Lee left for school in summer of 2011. And then running them kind of from afar, we hired a manager, but it was tricky. We definitely had some missteps and learned some things along the way there. Um, And then we were approached by an old classmate of Lee's after we both graduated in 2012 to open a property in New York City. So he had studied or was working in real estate investment, real estate private equity, kind of understood the concept of hostel, couldn't understand why no one was financing them quickly realized that a lot of them just were run by operators who were quote unquote unbankable um, and that he wanted to take a a run at it. So we started consulting with him, kind of talking to him about operations. Quickly, he realized that he was a little in over his head, I think, operationally and asked us if we would partner with him and move back to the States to do it. So I was keen to get back to my then-boyfriend, now-husband, who was over there, so I was happy to, to leave. I think we had a little more heartache leaving Barcelona, but we um, moved back to the U.S. in the winter of 2012. And then um, spent, I guess it was just a year, renovating this warehouse in Long Island City and then opened the local, our, our first U.S. hostel in um, 2014.
0: And so how does it work between the two of you? Do you guys decide who does what? Do you guys have areas of Okay, I'm I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to focus we on that. We
1: love this question. We get it all the time and we do not have a good answer. It started off everything was small and we time was on our side. We were real long on time. When we moved to Barcelona to start this, so we did everything together, which maybe not the best use of resources, but it was hilarious, right? Every accounting meeting and design decision and real estate searching, we were side by side, it was just this funny sister duo and it was, I thought it was a laugh, laugh riot. Um, As it's gotten bigger, we can't do everything together anymore. So we, there's not a real clear assignment of roles, but we have kind of naturally broken out. And there are certain things that I do, certain things that Lauren does. And then, of course, because we're geographically separated, I tend to focus more on the operations in New York and Lauren in Portland. Do you have any better answer for that, Lauren?
2: Helps. No, I mean, Lee and I have a bit of a psychic connection, I think. So it's helpful in that if there's moments where I'm swamped with you know whatever's going on here in Portland, lee lee knows enough to be able to pick up the slack in certain areas like for instance lee always handles our insurance but for some reason last year we were super super busy when insurance renewal time came around so i jumped in and did it so i don't know yeah we've kind of naturally sort of specialized in certain things but we've tried the exercise of writing down these are your tasks these are my tasks and we never really stick to it so it's just kind of been a little bit of what we both like and naturally gravitate to, and then sort of getting done what needs to get done.
1: I did not choose insurance for the record. I think that's the problem. Every time we do that exercise, like, oh, I don't want to do that. My list is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Your list is better. And it just, it ends up just working out.
0: Um, And I'm assuming you now have teams, right? Like you're not just doing it, just the two of you? Mm. Mm, sort of.
2: <laughs> the t- so we, it's we've operated really leanly i mean this the project in, Bar- in in portland it really was just the two of us opening it i mean we did all of it was just us to do um, all of the development of the building design construction management we've hired great people um, so our contractor was wonderful our interior designers were amazing to work with um, we've surrounded ourselves with great people in those trades but really it's just been the two of us we hired a general manager right before opening um, who was able to kind of help with some of the opening stuff. And now we have great teams at growth properties. So we have, you know, great general managers and assistant managers in place to help support. Um, but in terms of the owners ownership and kind of um, management company stuff, it's really, it's just. Which is amazing. insane.
1: It was fine when it was two little rinky ding places in Barcelona, New York, we have a third, the third partner, it was manageable, but to do, ground up construction soup to nuts of uh, that was yeah normally that would be a huge team and it was just Lauren and me on the ground and some days many days it felt like a three-ring circus because we're wrangling 10 different contractors and moving in furniture and it
2: was it was a lot but we did it we can do it
1: we're good at it
2: (laughs) yeah but anything more I think we're kind of at max capacity at this point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For the development piece of it for sure.
0: Yeah. And I guess as you, you know, if you do have plans to continue to grow and develop. And I think that's probably where my question was originally coming from. Because I've seen for myself, like, you know, at the beginning of my career, it was very much me, myself, and I. And I just had myself. And then I started growing my team. And then I realized that I had to make some changes in the way that I worked. You know, what got me there won't get me to my next stage Mm -hmm. as well. And I had to Mm -hmm. learn that okay, I need to know less about the technical details and start delegating more, um, get better at communicating and being clear. Like I remember I'd have like these catch-ups with my team. We'd walk out of the meeting. He would think one thing. I would think another thing. And then we'd come back and we're like, oh, hang on. That's, you know, (laughs) it's two completely different things that we're walking away with. So and then as my team kept growing and getting even bigger, then I had to make even more changes. So I guess, yeah, that was where my question was coming from in terms of who does what and, you know, how do you assign it? But if you have a team, how do they know who to go to for what as well? But it sounds like you're still just the two of you doing a lot of things.
1: It's the two of us, except again, the operations on property. We have amazing teams in place in both sites. So day-to-day general management, Lauren and I try to be hands-off, but everything else is just the two of us.
2: Hey,
0: um, I'm just going to go back to, yeah. So what, you know, it's just the two of you, you've obviously grown, you moved back, you know, you know, working in Europe and now in the US, I guess, what have some of your learnings been um, from this time that you've been, you know, starting your own businesses in two different countries, actually? (laughs) Where do we begin?
1: I mean, We're constantly learning, that's the glorious thing about this, and I think why entrepreneurship was so attractive to me, as opposed to the Wall Street career, Um, granted I only had three years in my role, but at the end of those three years I felt pretty confident what I was doing. i had risen up the learning curve, which was steep, but then I was feeling confident, and and there was still more to learn, but it wasn't going to be as steep of a curve. We're still learning. How many years have we been doing this, Lauren? We are still every day learning a lot new. So I don't, I mean, we we could come up with some like wise lessons, but everything, you name a topic and, and Lauren and Eric are constantly learning, which I think is, that's what keeps me in it and interested is that we're constantly growing and learning. Lauren, do you have any wise adages or?
2: Well, and then you throw COVID on top of it. and Yeah. <laughs> there's a whole new book to learn. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there's, I could go down so many paths with this. Um, I think through COVID we learned that it's, I think when you're going through tough times that honesty and communication is the most important thing. So with our investors and with our banks and with everyone through COVID, the more information we could give people and the more we could share what we were doing, what we were trying to accomplish, what failures we were having, how bad things were, the better. And I really think that is something that, you know, you're always as a real estate developer, um, you always are painting a rosy picture. You know, we've learned from early on when we first started our first project in New York, it may be a particular type of person who gets into real estate development, but you tend to really kind of over-exaggerate what you're doing. You you have an IRR threshold that you will jigger your numbers to meet that IRR threshold for your investors, no matter what. Like, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of a crazy industry where I think people just have very high ego and kind of always paint this really rosy, rosy, optimistic picture. And we kind of, you know, fell into that with, you know, wanting to always put our best foot forward and kind of let people know there's light at the end of the tunnel and things are looking great. But through COVID, I think we realized that 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 doesn't necessarily get you where you need to go. And that the best path with investors and with banks and everyone is to just put everything out on the table and really embrace these people as as partners in your business. Um, And that's kind of the only way to work through really hard times together. So you think that was a big thing, Lee, where it just, yeah, I mean, things were going great before COVID. So I'm not to say yeah. we were like, you know, not being honest about things, but in tough times, there's there was really no need to kind of put this optimistic, bright, rosy picture forward. It really was just so key to be as honest as possible with people and embrace everyone um, who might help with solutions.
1: What I think is interesting, too, is I think that's an important tenet in hospitality and service and service mm-hmm. correction. Lauren and I, yeah, when we moved back to New York City, worked as waitresses for a year. There was a restaurant in town that was just opening up as we moved here. It was a guy who went to the same university as Lauren did. We really didn't have any experience, but begged him for jobs just because we didn't know that much in F and B and we're opening up a cafe and bar for the first time. Uh it also got we got to know the neighborhood really well. So we worked as waitresses and That was the thing, I mean, we've dined out a ton, we've seen service mistakes. When you screw something up, you just tell people, you explain, you apologize earnestly, and people are receptive to that. And I even found that most recently, there was late pandemic years, we had a guest screw up in New York, that was so bad. It was like screw up upon screw up, and the guest had a right to be livid, they left, we had to pay them money, it was just so bad. But I picked up the phone and it called the person. I was surprised they answered. And I just said, listen, I know you've left here. I am so sorry this happened to you. And by the end of the conversation, he was oddly apologizing to me and thanking me. And it just occurred to me that people aren't that honest. And people, I think it takes a lot for people to say they're sorry these days, which mm-hmm. I think on all levels, like Lauren's saying, the, the macro level, if you're talking about investors and business relationships is really important to be forthright, but then also the very micro level and your interactions with your guests and customers. If you screw something up, just explain what happened and apologize. Cause I was genuinely sorry this happened.
0: Completely agree. I think that honesty is, you know, always, it, yes, it's hard and it's definitely hard to say sorry as well, but I always, I've always found it that I feel so much better afterwards when I can just be honest about a particular situation and just say hey look this is the situation this is what's happening and if it's my fault you know take take the responsibility for it instead of trying to like find different ways to to yeah ask those questions I think it's a
1: level of vulnerability that is stereotypically heteronormative female and particularly in the real estate industry that just doesn't exist and so that's been it's been hard for the two of us to navigate because we're just not used to the cultural norms of the real estate world. Um, I started reading one of the biographies about Trump recently, and I had to stop because it was triggering me. It was just like, oh, this is the industry, and it's run by people like this. And this is the way the reason why things are like this. And it I think the cultural adaptation to get into the real estate world was
2: more of a cultural shift than working in Spain do you think that's true Lauren yeah definitely definitely I mean I think yeah it's just a whole other language and the I don't know you just kind of reframe how you do business and there's definitely if there is a like male ego driven component to it but we had to sort of learn to play the game, but also stay true to ourselves. And so that was, that's always tough is balancing. Like when we do financial forecasts, we're very realistic. We want it to be accurate. When people in real estate typically, I think it's very much inflated. It's meant to look as great as it can on paper. And so we struggle when we approach banks, you know, with that push and pull of like, I want this to be true to what it is, but I also need it to look good, you know, for the bank so it's it's tough it's it's definitely a strange strange cultural
1: and it's taking us a while to decode it too so the bank example lauren and Mm -hmm. i couldn't understand where we present numbers to the bank that we thought were real and they would say your numbers aren't showing profitability we're like i'm sorry they are and it occurred to us that inherently they I'm sure discount anyone's projections by probably 25% because they're, they're this is how the industry works. They know that the people are posturing, they know that people are solving for a certain return. And so that's just been hard. Because again, I don't think Lauren and I ever will get to a point where we put numbers forward to a potential investor that we think, that we don't think we can meet and exceed. But recognizing that this machination of internal discount happens because this is just how it works. It's really, learning a foreign language that's more difficult than catalan really
0: i was just about to ask is you know learning the real estate speak or the real estate language harder than learning a foreign
1: language i mean it is the subtle complexity to it it's like it's not the the language and the financial terms we're fluent in that it's just this unspoken culture way that things work
2: oh But even the language and the financial terms, I think that a lot of people get Mm -hmm. on calls and they throw out jargon and lingo just to kind of test how much you know, how much experience you have. Lee, we had a call the other day with someone about financing, Got off the call, and we were like, I don't even, I've been doing this for 17 years. I have an MBA in real estate, and there were some things where I'm like, I'm going to Google that, I guess, because he couldn't be bothered to speak plainly or clarify things. I think there is some posturing in that where there is some mm-hmm. something to just using all these acronyms of lingo just to kind of see if how people will react to it. Fascinating. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. that, that's upsetting <laughs> when they just try to, yeah, the, it's almost well, like it's, they're trying to trick you, right? And, well, it's, nice.
1: and it's or bravado, right? It's yeah. trying to show how mm-hmm. sophisticated they are when actually that shows me you're not that sophisticated because these Concepts you're talking about are actually really plain and not that complicated. If you don't know the specific keyword, it's confusing, but financial concepts are actually quite basic. You just have to be fluent in the buzzwords. And that's, I think that's a shame. I think a lot of women are intimidated. I guess people in general, not just women, people in general are intimidated by finance or finance. Yeah. Um, but it it really is just a question of putting terms to pretty plain concepts that most people understand already inherently
0: yeah I think you're absolutely right I think finance whichever area of finance we're thinking about whether it's real estate or personal or uh, others you know I went on this journey myself right like I never even wanted to think about my finance my personal finances whether it was pensions or whatever it's like oh my god it's too complicated I don't understand this and yeah, the acronyms, the wording, it's for some reason, the industry has made it extremely complicated when it really doesn't need to be. So once I started like peeling it back and started reading it up and just start like, okay, put some common sense logic to it. It became a lot easier and less scary. It's concepts you probably already understood naturally. Exactly. But you're right. I mean, yes, for everybody, but women, especially, you know, they just don't even want to tackle it. And then trying to find the information is also then really hard. So it's it's a bit like, okay, where can we go to find the information that you need? And mm-hmm. once you start looking and digging, you will find it. It's just a matter of, you know, let's start talking about it. You know, let's yeah. I mean I never spoke about this with my friends or my family or even my colleagues. So, yeah. you know, how do we make sure that we open up the conversation enough, you know, hearing stories like yourselves, you know, like, went and figured it out. You did your MBAs, you you learned as you went along, you had each other to support. I mean, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, hopefully anybody else listening to this will also be encouraged to, yeah, take a look at finance or if they were maybe not even considering a career in it, um, consider it, you know, it, it's possible if you want it.
2: I bet you could do a whole podcast series on this, but I'm sure, you know, there's an element of gatekeeping where people who are in these positions don't necessarily want other people to understand it. I'm sure there's an element of sexism, racism, all of it. So yeah, it's it's definitely tricky and tough to navigate, but it could be I'm sure it's a it's a, it's a big topic, but it's it's mm-hmm. an issue for sure.
0: And, you know, uh... Let's talk a little bit about gender. You know, yes, traditionally, you know, real estate is is more male oriented, as is finance. Even in, you know, if we think about owners within hospitality real estate, it is still very much male driven, depending on where you are in the world. You know, it's more companies and within those companies, senior management, again, is, is, is male driven what has been your experience like do you feel like that held you back or do you think that encouraged you or wasn't a factor at all um what has been your experience with yeah gender throughout your uh, careers and running businesses
2: i would say a more recent thing is becoming a mom and realizing how hard it is to operate and own a business that runs 24 seven. I mean, that is the nature of hospitality. Once you open a hotel, you don't close it. It's not like you can lock the door at the end of the night, walk away, have a peaceful night with your family and come back whenever you want in the morning to open up again. Um, so I think that as a, as a woman and as a mom, you you start to realize that makes sense, that, that it's tough to be in hospitality when it is such a demanding 24 seven business. Um, the way things are set up in the US in terms of childcare and, and all of it um, makes it really difficult, I'm sure, for women to, to continue in these careers and get to higher and higher levels. Hmm. And then, Lee, you can speak more to kind of everything. It's hard.
1: It's hard because you <laughs> don't, uh, no woman ever wants to say, I didn't get that SBA loan because I'm a woman, or that bank shut us down because we're women. But it's hard. When you've got a solid concept and a track record, and financial background, and equity investors your, on your side, it's hard to to be rejected for you know institutional funding. And you're like, well, but the reasons you're explaining don't add up. Um, is this just misogyny? I don't. It's hard because you don't ever, you can't ever say clearly that that's what it is. But I. Um, Again, just because most of the lenders we're dealing with are male, um, again up to the SBA level, it it has felt that way. Again, impossible to say, but it it feels like that for sure. That said, we've also benefited being women. I think it's a cool story. I think people are genuinely excited that it's two sisters running these businesses. So I think. On the whole, people relate very favorably to us being women in, in a business like this, but I do think really more on the funding side and specifically the debt financing. it's I, I have to imagine there's a certain level of misogyny.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think also we've chosen to work with as many women as we possibly can, Um, and it's become more something more conscious in recent years like with this project in Portland we worked with female interior designers um our the project manager for our construction was a woman and she was phenomenal at her job and she I think she was she's younger and she really really appreciated working with two women owners and developers because in the past she'd never had that experience and so as much as we can um have women on our team and work with women we choose to just because it's. I think our way of helping to elevate people in their industries, but also I think it's just there's a level of understanding where I could breastfeed in interior design meetings and it was wonderful. No one cared. Um, and so that's, that's been a nice thing in the last few years as we have worked on this project is being able to kind of pick and choose who we work with and, and make a more conscious effort to work with teams of women.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really nice to hear. Thank you so much. And you're absolutely right about what you said earlier about hospitality being a 24/7 business. You know, it's it's hard and absolutely that you you cannot shut shut down, you know, you can't really shut off. At the same time, I also think that means it should offer enough flexibility to be able to offer the hours that someone may need, you know, because you have that you don't have that mm-hmm. fixed 9 to 5, right? So you know, what are some of the things that we can all be doing to ensure that we can make it easy for women to stay in hospitality and have a career? You know, we see so, you know, we see this time and time again, you know, at the very beginning, it's all you know, almost equal. But then as you start going up, uh, it changes. And yes, childcare definitely plays a big part of it. But there's more to it as well. You know, what you were saying that maybe you don't have concrete examples of misogyny, but or you, no one's told you that this is the reason. but inherently, you <laughs> know suspect. this. you know, and it's the same with leadership as you start going up. It's the biases because you don't see mm-hmm. the same people and so on and so forth. So you know part of the reason for doing this is to showcase that there can be so many role models in in different shapes, form, sizes, whatever you want to call it, right? So mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I would love to keep chatting and having this conversation, I will move on to my final question and ask you both, who inspires you?
1: I think Lauren and I have both been inspired by our parents. Now, that's a very generic answer that everyone says, but um, our folks have been our biggest cheerleaders, which is fantastic. When I called them up and said, I think I'm gonna move to Spain to do this. They're like, call your sister, get her involved, which that is the biggest blessing you could ever have. Um, And then also just their work ethic is incredible. And um, the entrepreneurial spirit that they both have, which I don't think I even recognized until much later. Um, But our mom was an educator. She was a teacher and then stayed home with us when we were little and then started her own job. She made up a job from nothing. Similar situation where she recognized a need. She was Kind of discontented with the science education that we were receiving in elementary school and so she took it upon herself to create science curriculum for the entire district and she approached the district and said hey i think you guys need this let me put together these units for you and it started from there it was a job that did not exist and so lauren and i didn't know that word entrepreneur when she was doing this she would never called herself that but i think that was probably really inspiring and we didn't even realize it that Mom just recognized a need and went and did this thing. Um, and our dad as well, he's extremely hardworking and his most recent ventures. He's got his own podcast and he's not taking this lightly. He, I think, has only been doing it for a year and it's hugely successful and professionally recognized. And it's like, oh, this is this is cool. This is who they are and this is what they've instilled from us and instilled in us, and this is kind of where this all comes from. So that's inspiring still.
2: I'll go with a totally different answer. I'm, um, as I stay in this job, of course, I'm not aging. The people who work for me are just getting younger and younger. (laughs) And I'm really inspired by this kind of new younger generation coming up um, that really has very important. um, They've placed a lot of importance on their own boundaries for their own mental health things that they believe passionately about. They are not satisfied with status quo. And I think we're all in for a real reckoning of, you know, how workplaces run and how things are structured. Um, I, you know, as much as it makes the job difficult sometimes dealing with this, this different mindset, I think it's, it's really wonderful that there's, there's this generation of young people who really, really want to change things and aren't, doing things the way that we used to do. And I think it's, it's really inspiring. I think people are going to have to make some huge changes in how companies are operated, but I think uh, they they have the right mindset. And I think they're with some tweaking, you know, they can help push our, our company cultures and, and everything in, in the right direction.
0: Hmm thank you so much for both of you sharing it and it's coming like from two different generations as well you know one such a generation that came before us and another is Mm -hmm. the one that's coming coming up and yeah both of them challenging and inspiring us in different ways so thank you both so much for sharing your story stories with us today
1: thank you it was lovely to meet you yeah
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you were as inspired as I was by that story. Please follow us here and on LinkedIn where I post videos of the recordings. Stay tuned for many more stories of inspiring women in hospitality.